I mentioned uh, Sunday morning during the Bible class that I grew up during the era of the Hee Haw television program. I also grew up in the era of uh, Carol Burnett show. Some of you may remember that Carol Burnett would come out at the end of her program and say, seems we just get started and before you know it, comes the time we have to say so long. And then she'd tug on her ear. And I must confess that it does seem like we just got started. I got here Saturday night and was welcomed by a wonderful fruit basket. Uh, I want to thank the ladies Bible class for that. It also had some little small miniature chocolates uh, uh, mixed in with that and as well as some good fruit. So uh, I started eating from the moment I got here and uh, haven't stopped since. All the meals that you've provided have been truly outstanding and I'm grateful to God for the privilege of your sweet fellowship which has even surpassed the good food. And I'm thankful for the singing that we've had. I really want to thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Thank the elders for the invitation. I know that uh, when I was a little boy, my uh, mother was not yet a Christian. And my dad would take us to services and we would come home. And my mom says I would go into my room and uh, pull out my uh, desk and turn it into a pulpit. Line up all my G.I. Joes and stuffed animals and whatnot and begin preaching. She said, really, you were in there screaming. And I don't really know why that would have been the case, because our local preacher in Elmwood, Illinois, was not a shouter. He didn't scream and shout. I think it's maybe for this reason. I heard about this little boy that was in Bible class, and Bible school teacher said, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I want to be a preacher. She said, that is fantastic. Tell this class why you want to be a preacher. He said, well, the way I've got it figured... I'm going to have to be at services anyway, and it seems like it'd be a lot more fun to stand up and yell at people than to be one of the ones being yelled at. I want to be a preacher when I grow up. Now, I've never met a preacher that really viewed his work as standing up and yelling at people, but when you're a child, it may seem that way. There's another boy in that Bible class. He was smart. School teacher asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I want to be the visiting preacher. Now, he's a brainiac. I've been both. I've been the local preacher. I've been the visiting preacher. I've been the local preacher standing with the visiting preacher and hearing members where I'd preached for years come out and tell this man, we have never heard a sermon on that. And I said, three weeks ago I preached that. But went right over the top of their heads and they didn't capture it. Or I didn't give it in the way that was very memorable at least. And so I have never let generous comments such as you've been so gracious to give me this week go to my head and cause me to think I don't need to improve. My wife will tell you I've not preached a sermon yet with which I'm completely satisfied as far as the method or manner. The content, as long as it's from the Bible, it's a success, but I'm always wanting to improve. And so I certainly solicit your prayers as I strive to be a better preacher of the gospel, but I thank you for your encouragement along the way. It's been hard for me to sit here and listen to all these nice things said this week by Brother Tony about me and not get up and just spend minutes talking about what I think of him. I told him today that I thought he had such a, a good blend of Bible knowledge and love and care and compassion for people 
and you put those two things together and give a good wife to him like such as he has, and you've got a wonderful combination. No wonder you all have had such a happy marriage for uh, so many years. I'm grateful to God for the work that you all do together. This church is loaded with talent and ability, and I've been glad to rub elbows with you this week and to participate in some of that. Uh, I want to say one more quick thing before I launch into the sermon I've certainly appreciated every accommodation and all that you've done. also appreciate your patience. I know I've preached a little longer in this meeting than uh, than I did when I was in local work. I'm smarter than I look. Um, I know that in local work I probably would not have been able to get by with it as much. And yet I know, well, I'm reminded, Brother Winfred Clark, I don't know if you ever got the privilege of hearing Brother Winfred Clark when he was still alive, but... Uh, He told about this woman in a congregation that when she thought the preacher had preached long enough, she would begin to sigh and squirm and fidget in her seat and then look at her watch very openly as if to say, what time is it getting to be? And when that didn't stop him, she'd turn around, look at the clock on the back wall and gasp out loud about what time it was getting to be. Preacher said to the elders, you know, this is really distracting me. The elder said, we agree with you, this has got to stop and we're going to fix it. And so that Sunday morning came and he was about 12 minutes into a sermon. She thought that was about enough and so she started looking at her watch and sighing. She started squirming in her seat. She didn't get the result she wanted and so she turned around to look at the clock on the back wall. It was gone. Been taken down. Replaced with the life-size poster of the preacher. (laughs) And without missing a beat, she said, oh no, they've taken down time and put up eternity. What are we going to do? And if you thought that this week, thanks for not saying it to my face. I, I appreciate that very much. I would love to see you come visit our campus at the School of Preaching if you never have. Uh, You've been such a blessing to us supporting students to sit in those classrooms and supporting Brother Liddell, who's one of our invaluable uh, faculty members. Uh, I'm so grateful, but save the date. Save the date for our 50th annual lectureship, which is going to be the last Sunday in March of 2016. 2016, the last Sunday in March. It will begin And uh, I think that's the 29th, if it's not, it's whatever that last Sunday in March is. That's going to be Sunday through Thursday, our 50th annual lectureship. And if you've always planned on coming uh, to the lectures and just never have gotten around to it, why not save the date right now to come and be with us for a day or two next year? Uh, We would love to have you come celebrate our 50th with us. Have you ever taken the time to count the words in an unabridged dictionary? (laughs) I haven't either. I don't have that much time on my hands. I do know that uh, there are many words in the English language. I don't know how many there are, but I know there are many words that I still love to hear spoken, especially by little children. I still like to see a little child say, Mommy or Daddy. There's something special about that. And if you're a grandparent, whatever moniker they have given you, whatever name they've given you, I know you love hearing them say it, don't you? 
And there's still something very precious about hearing the name of Jesus. I still love singing it. I love hearing it. I love saying it in a reverential way. I do know this also. There are some words that make you stop and think. Some words that are so weighty, they may weigh on your mind and cause you to really give some thought and consideration. And what I want to do in this final message for this meeting is examine four of those words that weigh so much on the mind. And yet I want to try to lighten those words. If they sound like weighty words to you that would weigh you down, I want to give you a message that will take these words and make them lighter than air. Because of your preparation. Take the word death. Resurrection. Judgment. And what about this word? Eternity. Try to wrap your mind around the word eternity. Friends, I'm standing here to tell you that as each one of these words is considered, they raise a number of questions. Take the word death, for example. What is death? I don't have to speculate about what it is. My Bible comes right out and tells me what it is. In Genesis 35 and verse 18, the Bible speaks of Rachel being in hard labor. And it says, as her soul was in departing, for she died. And so there's your definition, your biblical definition. Death is when your soul departs from your body. And I know this. Because in 1 Kings 17, when that young boy died and the prophet went up into the loft to try to ask God to resurrect this child from the dead, do you remember in 1 Kings 17, 21, what the prophet asked God to do? He said this, let this child's soul come into him again. He was dead because his soul had departed from him. He would be alive, though, if his soul were to return and come into him again. And that's exactly what happened. The boy's flesh began to wax warm, and he was raised from the dead. What a marvelous thing. And James chapter 2 and verse 26 says, The body without the spirit is dead. And there's so many questions about death that people want to know about. I read about a Swedish scientist who, for some reason got it in his head that the number one thing people needed to know about death is the weight of the human soul, as if there is any material weight to it. He took terminally ill patients and he put their beds on very sensitive scales, and when they died, he would then measure their weight before they died and then after they died, and he averaged it out and he said, the human soul weighs 21 grams. Do you believe it? Friends, the Bible doesn't ever address anything like the weight of the soul. And it's not something the doctor is ever going to say, well, if you look here on the MRI, we'll see your soul. We'll see your spirit. It's not material in nature. And so I don't uh, expect it to have any weight at all as far as physical weight is concerned. And it wouldn't matter if it did, would it? The thing I want to know about death is when's it going to happen to me? And what's going to happen to me after it happens to me? And you know, the Bible is also clear about this. First of all, with regard to when is death coming for me? The Bible makes it clear. We don't know. Genesis 27, 2. I'm old. 
Isaac said, I know not the day of my death. But that was an older man speaking. But two young men, David and Jonathan, were speaking in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 3. And they said, there is but a step between me and death. Now, I know that uh, we all know that passage, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto men once to die. And we know that's coming for us. But I'm persuaded that some of us think that our death is so far off in the distant future, they haven't even manufactured the casket yet in which our bodies will be placed. Oh, I know I'm going to die, preacher. And I know someday my family will have to purchase a coffin for me, but... They haven't made that coffin yet. My death's so far off, they haven't even made my coffin yet. Truth. Truth. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1. Truth. You that say today or tomorrow we will, we will go into such and such a city and we will spend a year there and we will buy and sell and get gain. He says you don't even know what's happening tomorrow. What's less a year from now? What is your life? It's a vapor. It, it appears for a little time. You see the tea kettle. And here comes the wisp of smoke up out of the tea kettle. You see it, then you don't see it. It's here, it's gone. Just like that. I don't know when my day is coming, but I know it is. When I was in the seventh grade, I was in the school spelling bee. And I did well enough that I won the school spelling bee. And I went on to the district and actually won that and got to compete in the city finals with 24 other young men or women, young girls. And uh, I remember thinking it was a big deal because I was going to get to be on TV. They televised the city finals. There was this boy sitting next to me. I'll never forget him because he had an unusual last name. Zillion. Million with a Z. M-I-L-L-I-O-N, but with a Z, Zillion. Jack Zillion. He looked at me before the competition started, and he said, I hope you win. Now, what would a classy individual have said back to him? What I should have said was, well, that's very nice of you. I wish you the best also. What I said was, so do I. Mm. That's asking for it, isn't it? Guess what? Two of us left standing. Jack Zillion and Brad Clark, which is my real name. I misspelled the word negate. He, he spelled it correctly. Then he spelled correctly the word dilly-dally. I've forgotten all the details. I'm over this. It was a long time ago. And you can tell I'm not. He won... I'll never forget his mother was saying to me afterwards, I was crying. I felt like I'd acted arrogantly, and I had. I'd acted foolishly, and I felt like I'd let some people down that were counting on me. And so I was crying, and his mother kept hugging me, saying, You just need Jesus in your life, young man. And I remember saying, I've already got him. I told you all of that to tell you this. I don't know why they did it, but for some reason, they put the story about my participation in the spelling bee on television, they put it on the obituary page with my picture. 
And a lady in the congregation where my father was the local preacher called the house and she was crying. And my mother said, what is wrong with you? And she said, what happened to Brad? She says, what do you mean what happened to him? He's sitting here at the kitchen table with us. No, he's dead. My mom said, no, he's not. He's sitting right here. She went back and said, well, he's in the the obituary page. And then she said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to call and get you all upset. My mom said, we're never upset. We knew he was alive. You know what? Someday there is, if the Lord lingers in heaven, someday someone somewhere is going to pick up a newspaper and it is going to say, Bradley Joseph Clark passed from this life on such and such a date. He left behind these relatives, these members of the church. Uh, He asked that all donations be given to the Memphis School of Preaching, you know, things of that nature. I'm sure all that will be said. But you know what? I'm not scared. I'm not panicked over that. Knowing that my name is someday going to be on the obituary page doesn't make me full of anxiety. Now don't get me wrong, I love my family and I love life and I want to live as long as God will let me live to try to help as many people live in Christ as I can get to obey the gospel of Christ. And I really do want to see my family continue to grow, and I want to have grandchildren someday, which I don't yet have, and I want to watch them grow up and help them know the Lord. There's so many things I want to do, but if my time comes before I think it's going to, as long as I am in Christ, I'm okay because I know what happens to the soul after I die. How do I know this? Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And I know in Luke 16, 19 to 31, that when two men died, one of them rich, the other one a poor and very sick man named Lazarus, when these men died, they both continued to exist beyond the grave. They weren't out of existence. They were very aware of their existence beyond this life. And I want you to know that I know that Paul could say it with confidence, and I can say it with confidence too, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 8. And some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. One of my very favorite paintings is one I've never ever seen. I've only read about it. My wife is a good artist, and she's actually working on painting this for me over time as time permits. It is a painting that I read about, this description. It, it depicted the caterpillars that were dressed in black garments of grief, and they have very pained expressions on their faces as they're carrying this cocoon to its final resting place. And the cocoon is empty now. There used to be something in it, but it's gone. And it's no longer confined by the shackles of this cocoon. And in the painting, in the upper right-hand corner, there is a bright and beautiful butterfly that is no longer confined. It's free. And someday, I'll leave this body and I'll be free free of any ache or pain or any sorrow or sadness, any difficulty will be gone. And I will be able to leave this world knowing that there will be a resurrection. You see, death is not the end. 
It is a means to an end. That's why I love John 5, 28 and 29, and I love John 11, where Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, did any of you ever get to hear Marshall Keeble preach in person? Any of you ever get to hear Marshall Keeble? I never got to. I've only heard him on record. Brother Keeble preached, and I remember so vividly on one of his sermons, he said about John 11, do you know why he called him by name? Do you know why he said, Lazarus, come forth? And then after a long pause, he said, because if Jesus had just said, come forth, everything in the cemetery would have got up. That's why he said, Lazarus, come forth. Do you know what? John 5, 28 and 29 backs up Brother Keeble on that. Marvel not at this, the hour is coming in the which, how many? All that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation, I'm going to someday be raised from the dead. So if you bury me, you're not uh, putting an end to me, you're only... Look, it's only a matter of time until the Lord comes back and takes my spirit, which is returned to him, and puts it with a brand new body that raises from the dead. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 asks, with what body will they come? And he says this, look at your Bible, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and zoom in on verse number 35, because as you think about your being buried and resurrected, this is actually very encouraging. It, it makes it not seem so fearful to be buried, because look, when a seed is buried in the ground, it does not mean that's the last we'll ever see of that seed. It just means next time we see it, it'll be in a different form. It's going to spring forth. And it's not the end when it's planted. It's the means to an end. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 35, some man will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with, with what body do they come? And he says, uh, you fool, that which you sow is not quickened except it die. In other words, you couldn't get a crop unless you planted it in the ground and buried it. You'd never get anything. That's the very key to getting what you want for a crop, to plant your seed. And he says, what you sow, you know, is not going to look like it. Uh, God's going to give it a body as it pleased him. And when it comes up, it's going to look different than it did when you planted it. That's what he's saying here. And then verse number 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead sown in corruption. If it hadn't been, you wouldn't have had to bury it. It's raised, though, in incorruption, sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory, sown in weakness. That's why you had to bear it, but it's raised in power. I like what the soldier said to his family members. He said, look, I, I hope I survive every battle I'm in, if I'm in any battle at all, while I'm fighting for this country overseas, while I'm in the military. If I die on the battlefield, they'll ship my body home, and I'm pretty certain they'll play taps at my gravesite. He said, I guess that's all well and good. But you know, if they're going to play something at my gravesite that really represents what that place represents, they ought to play Reveille, because I'm getting up from that place someday. He knew it. You say, well, what's the guarantee that you'll be raised from the dead? Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, zoom in on verse 21. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, for 
As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I'm not afraid to die because Jesus Christ conquered death. It has no more dominion over him, Romans 6 and verse 9. I walk with the man that has the keys to Hades and death, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And someday he'll use those keys to open up that place and let me out to get a brand new body that's suited for eternal residency. I am so grateful to know that because Jesus conquered death and defeated the one that had the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, I don't have to be afraid to die. Because that's not the end. It's a means to an end. Now that brings me to the third word tonight, the word judgment. There is going to be one. In fact, did you know the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves there's going to be a judgment day? Would you go to Acts 17 with me and notice this? Acts chapter 17. And here's a statement that is made in verse 30 and 31. We often quote verse 30 and forget perhaps to go on. It's true that the times of this ignorance God once winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. But there's a reason given in the next verse. Why has God commanded all men everywhere to repent? Because. Because why? He has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's Jesus. Now, how do you know there really is going to be a resurrection day and a judgment day? Here it is. He says, Whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he's raised him from the dead. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And people can dispute about which one was the tomb in which Jesus' body was placed. But there's no disputing this. His body's not there anymore. It's gone. It's gone. He arose on the third day and he conquered death and he ascended into heaven. And now when I die, I'm going to also be resurrected from the dead someday. And the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. A young person asked me at camp some years ago. And they weren't trying to be cute. They really wanted to know. They said, Brother Clark, if I've got my headphones on and I'm listening to my tunes really, really loud, will I be able to hear the trumpet sound? What would you tell them? I said, you'll hear it, you'll see it, you'll feel it. One preacher has referred to 1 Thessalonians 4. Incidentally, some of your religious neighbors and friends, and maybe some here tonight for all I know, have been taught that, oh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, that's the rapture passage. That's the passage that proves that someday... Millions of people are going to be secretly raptured off of this planet to go and live for seven years with Jesus in heaven while there's terrible tribulation taking place on the earth, etc., etc., etc. And yet the problem with the etc., 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 and everything that comes before it, there aren't any verses of Scripture to back it up. One of the meetings that I've been requested to preach here more often Uh, here lately than ever before, is one called God's Answers to Men's Questions About the End of Time. 
And men have all kinds of questions about the end of time, and they're getting their answers from people that are not getting their answers from this book right here. And so this idea that someday you're going to be secretly raptured and no one will know what happened to you, does 1 Thessalonians 4.16 sound like a secret to you? He descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. One preacher called this the noisiest verse in the Bible. It's not going to be a secret. Every eye shall see him, Revelation 1-7. When the Lord comes back, just as they saw him leave, Acts 1-9-11, he says, you'll see him come back. Yes, he, you'll know. You won't have any doubt. Now, I would dare say... We've got some college football fans in this audience tonight, and I'm not foolish enough to name a team for the following illustration. Let me just say, for the sake of illustration, your team is in the national championship game. They've gone undefeated. There's only one other team of any repute that's gone undefeated. There's no debating whether number one and number two are playing each other. They are, without question, the top two teams in the country and it has been a nail-biting affair, nip and tuck, back and forth. It's come down to this. Your team has the ball this far from the goal line. And you have wondered what they're going to call in the huddle. Are they going? It's fourth down, by the way. You're this far from the goal line. There are three seconds left on the clock. This is the last play. It will decide the national championship. You're either going to be stuffed as you try to get into the end zone and lose the national championship because you're down by four points. You, field goal doesn't help you. You've got to score. And so the quarterback breaks the huddle, and he's looking over the defense, and you're wondering, is he just going to take the snap and sneak it right over? We win. Maybe he'll give it to the fullback or the halfback. They'll dive over the pile. Touchdown. We win the national championship. Maybe they'll get really brave fake the handoff, the tight end will squirt out unguarded, just toss it to him, touchdown, we win. Your palms are sweaty, the stadium is rocking, and the people watching in their homes are nervous, 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 and the quarterback calls for the snap of the ball, and just as he's turning toward the running back, that's for the sake of illustration when it happens. So what, he fumbled? Well, he might have, because what I'm talking about, hypothetically, just for the sake of argument and illustration, what if the Lord came back with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, at the very moment this play was about to unfold and develop? You say, well, well preacher, who won the game? Are you serious? There's not a bigger sports fan in this building than yours truly. I promise you that. Who cares? Because when it all comes down to it, the Lord isn't going to look at you. He's not going to look at me and say, well, your team did pretty well this year in college football. I think that uh, goes well for you and uh, that probably helps you get into heaven. Are you kidding me? No. No, no, no. It's not about physical things. It's about spiritual preparation for the judgment day. And you know one reason why you need to get ready for the judgment day? Because you don't have any idea what it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to be, neither do I. 
Matthew 25 is pertinent to this, and I want you to remember those virgins, ten of them. And remember that five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. But can I show you something? They were all friends of the bridegroom or they wouldn't have been invited to be a part of the bridal party in the first place. And these five foolish virgins assumed too much. They assumed they were properly prepared, sufficiently prepared. If they had been thinking about this sooner and had noticed sooner their deficiency, they would have done something about it sooner. They were oblivious to their own lack of preparation. And I think it's entirely possible that someone that's even a Christian hanging out with good, faithful people that are ready for heaven, it's possible that you think that I think because I'm hanging around this group, I'm going to get to go wherever they get to go on the Day of Judgment. We get in on the group plan. No, we don't. When the bridegroom came, the foolish virgins suddenly noticed their oil is insufficient to keep their lamps lit for the journey from the bridal house to the groom's house where the procession would take place. And you couldn't be on the street without a lighted lamp. And so this is a big deal. You've, you've got to have your lamp trimmed and bright. Give us some of your oil. Hey, why don't you share some of your surplus oil with us? The wise said, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. Go rather, watch this, Matthew 25, buy for yourselves. Do you know why? Each one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things we've done in the body. Whether they be good or bad. I'm not answering for brother so and so. I'm not riding in on the coattails of brother so and so. Well, did you know Gus Nichols baptized me? Someone might say. Do you know I was baptized by one of the, the great preachers of, no, friends, on the day of judgment? None of that matters. What matters, and you saw I was a member of a very faithful congregation. We were vibrant, thriving, growing. And what did you do? What did you do to help out with that? God's going to look at you individually on the day of judgment, and he's going to do the same for me. Would you notice that in verse 10 of Matthew 25, the Bible says this, while they went to buy the door, shut. I worked at Burger Chef when I was growing up. I love 10 o'clock. The manager tossed me the keys. Lock up, Clark. I lock the doors. I'm sweeping down the floors, getting ready to mop after I wipe the table, sweep the floor. I can then mop. We can go home. Great. Uh, we turn the lights out outside, but we leave the interior lights on, of course, to see what we're doing. And some people seeing the interior lights on in the restaurant assumed we were still open. More than one time, I'd be in the dining room with the doors already locked. And I'm sweeping and mopping or doing something like that, and here comes a car pulling into our driveway, our parking lot. Someone gets out. They stride confidently to the door. They pull, fully expecting that door's going to open. When they pull on it, and uh, when it doesn't, this happened on more than one occasion. They see me in there. Are you all closed? That's where you want to say what you can't say, (laughs) right? Uh, Yes, sir? Well, this one fellow said to me, most folks just said, okay, and go back and get in the car and leave. This one fellow said, 
Do you have anything in the warming bin that you're going to throw away anyway that you've already cooked? You wouldn't have to mess up any dishes or make anything dirty that you've already cleaned. Do you have anything that's in the warming bin? Let me check with my manager. He wants to know if we have anything. I'm sorry, sir, we're, we're closed. One fellow said, I don't even want you to cook me anything. I just want a drink. Can I get a Coke or something like that? Let me check. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My manager says we're closed. The door shut. Missed your opportunity. Now, here's the difference. The next morning at 6 a.m., that door is going to swing wide open again. And you can come in and order anything on the breakfast menu. And if you wait long enough, you can cycle to the lunch menu and you can get the burger you wanted last night at 10.03. You can get what you want the next day. But here's the difference, my friends. In Matthew chapter 25, there is no next day opportunity. And so if you think, oh, well, look, I'm going to just wait till the next day's opportunity. Remember W.A. Bradfield? I never got to hear him preach either in person, but I, I read from him and I read about him and I heard some things that he said. And one of the stories that was told is about this man during a gospel meeting who decided he did need to be baptized for the remission of sins as Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 so clearly teaches. He did need to arise and be baptized to wash away his sins. Acts 22, 16, as Saul of Tarsus was told to do. And he did need to become a member of the church the people on Pentecost became members of. The church that belongs to Jesus Christ, Acts 2, 47. And so he said to the visiting preacher and the local preacher on Tuesday night or a Wednesday night before the last night of the, it was the next to the last night of the meeting. They went to his house afterwards to visit him and he said, I need to be baptized and I need to, to do it. I know that. And so I've made a decision I, tomorrow night, the last night of the meeting, I will be baptized. Oh, if you know you need to, let's do this right now. We don't have to wait till tomorrow night. You can sleep so peacefully tonight. Let's do this right now. No, I, I've already made up my mind it'll be tomorrow night. But what if there is no tomorrow? No, it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. You already know where I'm going, don't you? Next morning, tractor, tips, crushes his chest. And the personnel who worked with him to try to save his life said that he could only muster one sentence, but he said it more than once. Essentially, he said, get me, brother so-and-so, I want to be baptized. Get me, brother so-and-so, I want to be baptized. And that ambulance drove right by the church building on its way to the hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. He put it off. And friends, I'm begging you not to. He said, I'll be fine. You don't know when the Lord's coming back. Well, a preacher friend of mine said he was listening to this religious racketeer on the radio say, I've done the mathematical calculations. I've looked at the prophecies. And I'm telling you right now, the Lord's coming back in three weeks. Three weeks, it'll all be over. It's plain as day. Three weeks, it'll all be over. He went on like this for 30 minutes almost. 
At the end of his broadcast, his announcer came on and said, if you really like this message and you want a personal copy of it, please write to us at this address and please allow four to six weeks for delivery. Mm -hmm. I don't think somebody believes what they're preaching. Now, am I going to stand here and tell you the Lord's coming back tonight? No, I'm not. Am I going to stand here and tell you that he's not coming back tonight? No, I'm not. I don't know. And I do know this. I'm not preaching to stuffed animals and G.I. Joes anymore that are inanimate objects that don't have a soul. I'm preaching to those who have an eternal soul that's going to be lost somewhere or saved. And I don't want to just leave without pleading with you. Some years ago, I was preaching a meeting of these boys in the back of the auditorium. Unfortunately, not all young people are like this, but these boys thought that I'd preached long enough. That service started at 7.30. It was about 8.20. I'm preaching the last night of the meeting on the second coming of Christ. These boys, and this isn't a fictitious story. This really happened. I saw it happen with my own eyes. They started, they apparently had somewhere to go. This was one of those rare places where they had their last night of the meeting on a Friday night. Their meeting went Sunday through Friday. And so they're looking at their watches and, uh, I'm not finished. They're looking at their watches and I'm still going. And so at about 8.25, they stood on the back pew, which was right underneath the clock. And they pointed up at the clock. And then they looked up at me and went. I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, you boys that are standing in the back pointing at the clock and they shot down just like that. I said, I don't know your names. But I love you. I love your soul. Jesus does know your name and he bled for your soul. He died for you. And I don't know where you're in a hurry to get to. And I don't know what's so important to you tonight. But I do know this. 75 years from now, 100 years from now, 150 years from now, what's going to be the most important thing to you then? Tell me. I'm not here to just fill time this week. I actually believe there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. I know this is true because the Bible hasn't changed. It's still real. The judgment day is still coming. And that's what, my friends, on that day, this world and all that's in it is going to be burned up after I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I'm giving my either enter thou in or depart from me. This world is going to be not renovated. It's going to be annihilated. So seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 and following. The world's going to burn up. So let me ask you, what's the most important possession you have that you would not want to lose? Is it your phone? Can you imagine if somebody took your phone? Mm, how could you live without a phone? Your car? Any of you ever drive by a large junkyard full of automobiles in the field? 
And every time I do that, it's what I think. My mind's just made this way. I look at every one of those rusted out vehicles or vehicles that are dented or just sitting there in the middle of nowhere, it seems. And true or false, every car you see in the junkyard used to be someone's brand new ride, right? And now what? Here it is. So if you had the nicest car on the planet, here's what you'd uh, have. You'd have something that would someday wear out and not be drivable. That's what you'd have. You, if you have the nicest house on the block, you have something that's going to burn up someday if it lasts that long. If it's still standing when the Lord comes back. One of the things we've done in our Bible lands trips is go visit places where they had marble columns and temples erected and statues. This seems so permanent and now it's buried in the midst of ruins and it's rubble. It was the pride and joy of these communities in so many places. And now look at it. And where are the people that worshipped those gods? They're gone. And we've just substituted marble columns with certain things, gadgets, hobbies, worshipping certain celebrities or athletes, you name it. We have, we've not really changed that much. Here's what I want to say to you as we close out, my friends. The number one thing you could do is 1 John 2.28. Yes, the last thing I'd like for you to do is to, 1 John 2.28. Here it is. Now, little children, abide in Him. That implies that you first have to get into Him. And then once you've gotten into Him, then you stay there. Abide in Him. Now, how do you get... Now, why do you need to abide? Here's the reason. 1 John 2.28. That when He may appear... When he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If the Lord's descended from a shout, with a shout right now, would you be running for the baptistry? Would you be running for a place to hide? Or would you be saying, I finally get to meet Jesus, the one that bled for me and died for me, the one I tried to live for. I finally get to meet him face to face. My mom and dad called me aside and said, Son, we're going out of town to Ohio for a funeral. We're going to leave you here because we know we've, you've had to miss a lot of work lately. And this is the first time we've ever left you at home alone. And we want you to know that we don't really know when we'll be back. If, if we get over there to Ohio and the family needs us longer, we'll stay longer. We may be back as early as tomorrow night. It may be the next day. We just don't know when we're coming back. So you know what I decided since I don't know exactly when they're coming back, the best policy for me, just stay ready. So that when the garage door is heard going up, I'm not scrambling and running and trying to clean at the last minute and get this place in apple pie order. I thought if I just keep it ready, then whenever they come back, I won't be stressed out about it. Now, if that's true for a son making sure his mom and dad are proud of him the first time they leave him alone, I want my heavenly father, I want my savior Jesus Christ when he comes back to know I'm just trying to stay in a ready position. I'm just trying to stay, stay ready. And so, abide in him so that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Here's how I'm going to close this meeting. 
You've heard the plan of salvation all week long. And I've given it in every sermon. And I've still given it in this one already. Essentially talked about the need to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because if you don't do that, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. That uh, you need to repent and that God's goodness ought to lead you to repentance. Romans 2 and verse 4. And if you don't repent, you'll perish. Luke 13, 3 and 5. And let me tell you this. It's not enough to hear and believe and repent if you're not willing to confess. You need to be willing to make confession unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then what should you You should be baptized into Jesus Christ to get into Christ because that's where you put on Christ, Galatians 3.27, and that's when you're made a member of the church that belongs to Christ, Acts 2.47. And then what? You live, First Corinthians 15.58, be, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know your labor's not in vain in the Lord. And here's how I want to close this meeting. I want to ask you something. I want to ask you, If you've ever heard the following story, and if you have not heard it, please try to identify with it. If you have heard it, just ask yourself, where am I on this timeline that I'm about to describe, okay? Where are you at on the following timeline? Parents call their son in on the night of his high school graduation. They look at him in his cap and gown. They're amazed that this night has come so quickly. Son, you were just in your sandbox playing with your Tonka toys and trucks and your big wheel in the driveway. And now look at you here in your cap and gown. You're all dressed up. You look fantastic. Your your mom and I just want to have a talk with you before we leave for your graduation service. We want to talk about the future. It won't take long, but we just want to ask you a few questions. Okay. After you graduate tonight... What's next on your life agenda? Next thing on your list is what? Well, haven't we talked about this, Mom and Dad, already? Yeah, and we've we talked about it, but just talk it through with us. Humorous. Talk it through with us one last time before you graduate. You graduate, then what's next? I go to college, just like we've planned. I, I go to college, and I get my education, get my degree. Maybe that's when I meet the sweet someone that becomes my wife, and... Uh, we start a family and I start a career. That's what. <laughs> Your mom and I would love to see you find just the right someone and all oh, the grandchildren. Sweet. We're looking forward to the grandchildren. Okay, let's say you live long enough to get married, start a career, and have children. What's next? Uh, I raise the children. I raise them. I show them how to live and show them the stuff you taught me and they grow up and they go to high school and they graduate from high school. Whew. It would be great if we could see our grandchildren graduate. That would be wonderful. Okay, let's say you live long enough and we live long enough for the children that you and your wife have to grow up and graduate from high school. Then what's next? What's next after that? Uh, they go to college. They get their education. They meet their special someones and they start their families great-grandchildren. Now, that would be sweet. I don't know if we'll be around to see that or not, but okay. Let's say you live long enough to see your children get married and have children. Then what's next? By the time my children are having children, I guess I'll be getting close to retirement age. Uh, I guess I'll retire. 
Okay, good. Pretty confident your mom and I won't be around to enjoy much of your retirement years, but let's say you retire. What's next, son? After you retire, then what? I enjoy retirement. I go wherever I want to go, I guess. Uh, sleep till I want to get up and go where I just travel and see the grandchildren. I, I'm not really sure. How this, these are kind of hard questions for me to answer being a young person and all. Okay, I understand that, son, but let's say, let's say you live long enough to retire. You retire, and then what's next on your life agenda? What's next? After retirement, then what? What then? Well, I mean... I guess... After I retire and I enjoy my retirement and I mean I guess I'll I guess I'll die. With tears in his eyes, his father looked at his boy and he said, Yes, son, you will. We all will. But then what? What's next after that? That's why we had this gospel meeting. To make sure that if you don't know that your what's next would be a home in heaven, that you take care of that tonight before it's everlastingly too late. You march down one of these aisles and say, I've put it off too long. It's time to make sure the then what for me would be enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I want to make sure of my salvation. I'm coming tonight as a penitent confessing believer. I'm ready to be baptized into Christ and for the remission of my sins, Acts 2.38, to be added to the church that belongs to Christ. And then I want to live for Christ so I can someday live with Christ. That's what I'm coming to do right now. As soon as this song comes, preacher, I'm coming down this aisle If you're already a child of God and a wayward one, I am begging you without apology to get back in the ark of safety. Do not dabble in the world any more than you already have, if you have. And please take this seriously because as big and wide as this world is, I can probably just about promise you this, that when the real judgment day does come somewhere... There's going to be someone on the planet somewhere on the day the judgment day comes that would have been studying about it, reading about it, or thinking about it, or hearing about it. So how do you know, how do you know that this isn't the night he's coming back? You don't. But you can know that whether it is or isn't, you're fine, you're ready either way. No worries. Won't you... Make sure of your salvation right now as together we stand and sing, won't you please come to Jesus Christ?